You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Has anyone here ever been uh, burgled? Can you just stick your hand up? Yes. I've never been burgled, but I imagine it's a pretty horrible feeling. Has anyone ever been burgled and then recovered your stuff, like found it somewhere or the police have brought it back? Yes, quite. I imagine that's quite a satisfying feeling to have that some kind of resolution, uh, that there's some kind of uh, getting back uh, what's been taken from you. Um, a friend of mine, a guy called Sam Ward, I may have told this story before. Um, sorry if I have, but it's a, it's a great story. A friend of mine called Sam Ward, he's coming to preach for us in September, actually. Uh, he moved into um, uh, open sh- the Openshaw Estate in Manchester, which is a, one of the most deprived um, estates in the country. And uh, he moved there on mission, and not long after he moved in, he and his friend came back to find that their front door was uh, kicked in and all their possessions had been taken. And uh, he didn't know what to do. And um, so he, he began to ask around. He went to his next-door neighbour's house uh, to ask if he'd seen anything. His next-door neighbour was a drug addict. It's a pretty rough area. And he opened the door and he said, oh, I just wondered if you'd seen anything. Someone burgled my house. And as he's talking to him, he looks over his shoulder and sees in this guy's front room all his possessions, <laughs> sofa, television, everything. The guy's just gone from one house to the other. And this guy's like, no, sorry, I didn't see anything at all. <laughs> I thought, um, well, why are we talking about burgling? Well, because right in the middle of this uh, passage, I think is a really brilliant picture of a satisfying picture of, uh, of what the gospel is, of, of what Jesus has come to do. He says in verse 7, uh, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then you can plunder the strong man's house. And the picture he's giving us here is really of uh, breaking into a robber's house and stealing back things that have been stolen. Isn't that a great picture of what it means to be a Christian? Like what it means to be saved and what the mission that God calls us to. That Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus has done this for you. That he has come into your life precisely to uh, bind up uh, the devil's power over you, to release you from the devil's power and to restore you to uh, the treasure that God created you to be, to be, to restore you to be as precious in God's sight and as valuable and as able to reflect God's glory as God created you to be. I think that's a really lovely picture. I think it's lovely for us to hold that picture in our minds as we think about what the mission God is sending us out on is. That we're out, we, God sends us out into the world to bind the strong man and to, to release his hold over people's lives. Isn't that amazing? To set them free from addictions and from spiritual oppression and from uh, ignorance of not knowing God's law. It's it's an amazing message. And not just to set them free, but to see them restored into God's image so that they can live lives full of the joy and peace and love of God, to reflect his image fully and to to live lives that in every way reflect God's wisdom and his glory and his love. Isn't that amazing? It's a great, great picture. Um, A fresh angle on the gospel. And uh, I, I did, there's something about it, some kind of bravado about it that I like. There's just something so satisfying. It's kind of like uh, you know, breaking into a burglar's house, you know, get, having the code to the safe, taking back all the stuff that was, that was taken from you. There's something quite punchy about that. So no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. That's what Jesus has done for you, or is willing to do for you. And that's what the mission Jesus sends us out on. Why is he saying this? Why is he saying this? And why is he, saying, why is he explaining his mission like this? We're just going to do a bit of digging into the passage to figure that out. In this first part of Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark is portraying for us the growing tension, animosity, 
between Jesus and the religious leaders in uh, Israel at the time. And so in chapter 1 of Mark, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus starts his ministry with a bang, some really powerful stuff happens, and it's relatively uh, not, it's not very controversial. Um, it's exciting, but no one's really speaking badly of Jesus. He goes to synagogue, he teaches, and they're, like, they're gobsmacked at his teaching. Nobody teaches like this. Nobody has the authority that he has. He casts a demon out of a man in a synagogue. He um, goes back to Peter's house and he heals Peter's mo- uh, mother, you remember, mother-in-law, you remember that um, story. And then loads of other people join in and uh, gather around the house and he spends the whole night healing people. He heals a guy with leprosy. Okay, so far so good. Nothing controversial is happening. Chapter 2 happens and questions begin to be asked. Jesus heals a paralyzed man, but he doesn't just heal him, he heals him by saying, your sins are forgiven you. And suddenly people are going, well, hang on a minute. We're okay with the prophet, he does cool things and speaks with authority, but that kind of sounded like he was claiming to be God. Now that maybe he, he knew he knows a bit better than us. At this point, they're not too angry. Then he starts eating, having parties, basically, with tax collectors and sinners, people of ill repute. Uh, people that the religious leaders would even go into their house or talk to, he starts to hang around with. And they start to think, well, okay, this guy's got some wonky theology and some questionable judgment. And then he heals a man. Uh, then he uh, allows his disciples to start breaking some of the minor Sabbath rules. They start to pick grain on the Sabbath, which was a really big deal in Israel. They were just to refrain from all work. And one of the things they thought they weren't allowed to do was to pick grain. Yeah. It's, it's hard for us to understand, but the point is it's is, is raising this controversy. And then, having said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he then heals a man who's got a withered hand on the Sabbath. And at that point, the religious authorities, the Pharisees, decide that this guy is evil. This is their shibboleth. This is their doesn't matter what good he does. If he breaks this Sabbath rule, with no work on the Sabbath, including healing people, then there's no way he can be from God. And it tells us in the preceding verses that they make up their mind at that point. They begin to plot to kill Jesus. Not much of a chance, is it? They don't give him much of a chance. But you see what Mark is doing in his telling of the story. He's showing us how that tension is increasing. So this is, they think he's not from God. With this negative attention, it's very hard for us to understand in our culture how this would have, uh, this, this society, but in a very, very kind of close-knit society, this negative attention coming from the authorities, Jesus' own family begin to question his activity. They begin to think that he's out of his mind. The Bible tells us that. And interestingly, just as a side note, I think it's just one of the wonderful evidences of how reliable the Bible is. You will not find, I don't think, in any other religious text, any kind of self-critical material. No, you, know, you wouldn't find in the Quran, for example, them admitting that some people thought Muhammad was crazy. But here we have like Jesus' own family, his mother and his brothers, thinking that he's crazy. So they begin to question, as you would, because the, it's, it's like, imagine um, you know, the government started to inspect your family, something like tax uh, inspectors are coming around, and social services were asking questions. There'd be, this kind of, there'd be this kind of buzz. There's something not quite right here. Maybe there is something wrong. You know, Because the Pharisees are asking the question, the religious authorities are asking these questions. Then his family begin to question him. And then, 
uh, things ramp up even further. Religious leaders begin to openly oppose him. So they're not just plotting in secret. They begin to openly oppose him and accuse him of sorcery. They accuse him of using evil spiritual powers to do the things that he does. Now, no, interestingly, notice they're not questioning the fact that these are miracles. They're not saying he's a fraudster, like he's tricking people. He, he, but he's, there's a genuine spiritual power involved. Demons are being cast out and people are being healed. But he's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. Mark recounts all these things, and what he's doing in this passage that we're reading today is he's explaining Jesus' response to those accusations. His first response to those accusations. And his response is essentially this. He's saying, they don't understand the mission that I'm on. They don't understand this, I'm burgling the burglar. (laughs) So they don't understand what's happening. When they, they think I'm breaking the Sabbath, but I'm not, I'm setting people free. They think that I'm opposed to God, but I'm on his side all along. And that's what this passage is about. He's, he's establishing his authority and showing his credentials that he's actually in the right. So that's, that's what's happening. But Mark presents it in a really interesting way. He's not just saying Jesus defends himself, but he's, he's weaving in a picture. Now, one of the things that's helpful for us to understand is when the Bible was written, it would have been written in Greek, and there were no spaces between the words, no capital letters or small letters, no punctuation, no chapter headings, no chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, no verse numbers or anything, just a sheet of text, letters. And one of the ways that the writers had of breaking up the text was they would use patterns to show that, that this, this chunk of the text is one story. I want you to read this as one bit. And that's exactly what Mark does here. Our reading today begins with Jesus in a house surrounded by a crowd, and it ends with Jesus in a house surrounded by a crowd. And what you would have read if you were an early reader, you would have seen that as like a chapter heading. It would have been like Jesus in a crowded house, you know. And you, it was stuck in your mind. And I'm supposed to read this as one thing. And that's what uh, he's doing here. And there's a theme here that um, Mark is bringing out that's something to do with houses. And that sounds really uh, down to earth. But bear with me, it's a really helpful uh, picture. It's something to do with houses. Um, and it runs through this passage like a, a refrain. Jesus is physically in a house. We can picture him in this small uh, Middle Eastern house. He's surrounded by crowds. It's so crowded they can't eat. His family are on the outside of the house. They're trying to seize him, take hold of him because they think he's mad. Not just kind of, can we have a quiet word? They want to grab him and drag him off. The Pharisees are outside of the house and they're around accusing him of sorcery, uh, trying to undermine his credentials. They accuse him of working on behalf of Beelzebub, the literal translation of that, me, of that name, which is a, a title in common use then for the prince of demons. The literal translation is the lord of the house. You see there's a, there's a pattern emerging. And then he, 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 gives a, he replies and says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You see, house, 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 house. <laughs> that's, that's, what that's what I'm trying to say, really. Nothing more complicated than that. And then he sums up his ministry using this image of a house, coming into a strong man's house, binding him up and plundering the goods. Why is he, why is he telling this story like this? He wants, us to sh- he wants to show that there's an irony in these accusations. The Pharisees are basically saying that you're not part of the house of Israel. You're on the outside. You're not in continuity with what God's always been doing. You're not one of ours. You're not on the home team, as it were. And, he's, and Mark is showing us, and Jesus is saying quite explicitly, no, it's actually the other way around. You guys are on the outside. 
and I'm right in the middle, doing what God wants me to do. And this family, by calling him out of the house, they're literally trying to stop God's work. You see that? By saying, come out to us, by trying to seize him, by trying to get hold of him, they're literally trying to undermine what God is doing. They're calling him out of God's will, out of the house. And the, those who are accusing him of working for the enemy are themselves working for the enemy. Which is what's behind that statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's worth mentioning. They're guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is this eternal sin, because they're in the presence of Jesus, doing mighty works of power, with no excuse for ignorance, and they are rejecting him willfully. If any one of you is ever in that situation, physically in the presence of Jesus, watching mighty works of power happen, listening to the words that come out of his mouth, and you reject him willfully, you might be guilty of that sin too. But as that's not going to happen to most of you, you don't need to worry about it, just in case anyone was worrying about it. So then there's this conclusion. Who are my mothers? Uh, who are my mother and my brothers? He points to the people s- sat in the house with him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my sister, my brother. These are my family. Okay, what's the conclusion? Two things. What's, what's this all about? Two things. God's ways seem crazy <laughs> to those who don't understand his mission. But they seem amazing to people who do. Isn't that pretty straightforward? Wasn't the exposition worth it? (laughs) God's ways seem crazy to those who don't understand God's mission, but they seem amazing to those who do. You know, I was uh, taking uh, Neve to a school trip just down at Arding Live the other day, and I took Charlotte as well, and when we got in the car, I said to her, we're going to drop Neve off, and then we're going to go to Granny's house. And all she heard was Granny's house. So all the way there, she was like, this isn't the way to Granny's house. <laughs> and then we came back, and I, I picked up Abby as well before. So we got home, pulled into the driver. She was distraught. Oh, I thought we were going to Granny's house. <laughs> Not quite as articulate as that, but basically that's what she was saying. And then I was like, we are going to Granny's house now. So she was crying all the way because she didn't understand the plan, right? And then when she finally realized we were going, I said, oh, that's great. Same thing. Silly illustration, but same thing. If we don't understand God's plan, his ways seem crazy. It looks like we're going in the wrong direction. It looks like his, his laws take us in the wrong direction. The things he does in our lives are take us in the wrong direction. But if we understand his mission, then it's all really rather exciting. So God's ways seem crazy to those who don't understand his mission, but amazing to those who do. And the second thing, only those who don't want to obey God could accuse God of evil. So those two things. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Isn't that amazing? The cross is the power of God. If people don't understand what God is doing, it just seems crazy, insignificant, pointless. Like, it wouldn't even matter if Jesus didn't exist, let alone be crucified by some random Pontius Pilate. But if you understand what God is doing in the world, the cross is the, the centre of everything, isn't it? It's, it's the hinge on which history turns. It's the, it's the middle of the, the whole of God's plan. And the second point, only those who want to obey God could, could accuse him of evil. John writes this in John's Gospel, John 7, 17. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So, if we understand Jesus' mission, if we understand uh, 
what his purposes are and we desire to obey him, we'll understand his words, his actions, his commands, his laws. Everything will make sense. And there's one more thing. This is the thing about the family. If you desire to obey God, then not only will you understand what God is doing and why he says what he says and all those things, but you'll have the amazing privilege of joining him on mission. That's what he's saying about being that family. Not only do we get to understand and be like, okay, I get it. I get why Jesus is doing and saying these things. But we get to be on mission with him. Okay, that's the kind of exposition. I want to bring two kind of big applications to you for that. One is a little less personal, a little bit more about what's happening in the world around us. And then one a bit more personal. Firstly, I think these two things, they help us to understand the trends in the church uh, around us, some of the attacks that are coming our way, some of the uh, anti-Christian stuff in the culture that we experience, and it helps us to see what's at stake. If you want a contemporary example of the attitudes directed at Jesus in this passage, take a look at the attitudes directed towards Christians in Ireland over the last few weeks with their vote on the legalization of abortion. There is absolute ridicule for the traditional Christian stance on against abortion. It's either crazy, who could possibly believe this? this these people believe in the ravings of a, of a sky fairy, to quote. Why are we trying to obey the commandments of something written by a Bronze Age nomadic tribe, to quote? Why would you believe those things? It's crazy, isn't it? And, you know, and actually... One of the things about that debate is it, it exposed many of us to uh, the strongest arguments of those who are pro-choice in, in using the language they choose. And what right could someone else have to say to a woman that you must carry a child to term? Surely that's a terrible violation of that woman's sovereignty over her own body. Isn't, isn't that like a patriarchal oppression? Isn't it just like taking tradition and making someone do something? You know, isn't, isn't it a terrible, terrible violation? You know, and, and some of those arguments have been kind of um, explained in public more than ever before. And uh, so you see in the response to that vote, in the legalization of abortion in Ireland, a kind of a celebration that is, I think, a similar kind of attributing uh, good to evil, basically, is what's happening in this passage. There's a kind of, this is either crazy or these laws are either crazy or they're evil. And there's a celebration as God's moral law is rolled back from that country. The people were literally celebrating in the streets. Companies lined up to join in with the celebrations. You know, the Nestle sent over a huge shipment of after eight mints. Did you know that? To ironically celebrate the repeal of the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution. It makes me not want to eat them anymore. And in the midst of all this, you have Christians supporting that repeal. Why? People like... um, you know, the band U2, most of them even Christians, came out and said, you know, we're, we, we, we're against uh, this limitation on abortion. We're pro the repeal of that. We're pro-choice. And uh, not just famous Christians, but many privately too. Why would they do that? What the passage reveals to us is it's got to be one of two things. Either they don't understand the mission of God, I think that's the most generous interpretation. And I do think that's the case for many of them. They either don't really understand God's purposes in the world, 
or they don't want to obey him. I think for many Christians, it's the first. You know, and like I said, there are these powerful arguments, emotive arguments, and even treated abstractly, you know, away from the Christian tradition, away from wider understanding, they could even be persuasive arguments for pro-choice. And yet, when you begin to see God's way, all these arguments fade into the background. Because once you begin to understand that we are made in the image of God, once you begin to understand that each person is uniquely able to reflect and glorify God in a way that no other person can, no matter what the circumstances of their conception are, once you begin to understand the dignity of human beings, that we are created a little lower than the angels, that God might glorify us for all eternity to have a relationship with him, like children, that we might know him and enjoy him forever. Once you begin to start to put these facts into a cosmic perspective, once, once you begin to understand the, the purpose of sex to reflect uh, uh, the unity and the fruitfulness of God, once you begin to understand the holiness of marriage, the faithfulness of God, the healing power of God to rescue from even the most damaged and horrible of situations, the power of new life to bring healing and wholeness. Once you begin to take all those things into account, once you begin to understand the role of the, the, the church in relation to the, st- the laws in the state, once you begin to understand those things, no argument is stronger. God's way, his mission is so good, so wonderful. It's not crazy to be pro-life. You see why it's helpful for us to see that? How many issues are there today? I'm picking on that one, not because it's you know, more important than any of the others, but because it's fresh in our minds. How many issues where Christians are told that their opinions are, their, our moral law, the things that we've believed for 2,000 years are either crazy or evil. Do you see what's at stake? <laughs> we have this mission to plunder the enemy's house, to tie them up and to set people free from the lines of Satan and restore them to the, the beauty and the value that God imbued them with as people made in, their, in his image. And when we understand that, we begin to understand why God would say some things are good and some things are evil. So, you know, just taking that particular example, Christians who campaigned for this pro-choice position, for this repeal of the Eighth Amendment, they are like, frankly, Jesus' opponents in this picture. They think they're saving in the house. If the, this, the message comes through again and again on this issue or many other issues, if Christians don't change, if the church doesn't change its teaching, within a generation we'll be gone, won't we? If we don't get relevant, if we don't move with the times, if we don't change, we'll be gone and you know, we'll be left behind. That's what They think they're saving the house, but you see the picture? They're standing on the outside of the house calling to you guys, come out, this is crazy, come out. But you hear what's happening, they're asking you to come out. Out of fellowship with Jesus, out of the mission of God. You know, look at um, look at liberalism in the 20th century. The liberal churches, thinking like um, a church like ours, any conservative church is faithful to the gospel, is outdated. We need to update our message. We need to not worry so much about whether a person's saved. I think we just need to teach people to basically to be good and to to be lovely and so on. 
They thought they were doing an amazing work. They thought they were saving the church for the 21st century. There's a guy, place I went to church in London, a place called City Temple, and had this incredible preacher, a guy called Leslie Weatherhead. He was an amazing speaker, and he was a he was liberal-minded. And he was basically trying to sanitise the gospel, make it less supernatural, less spiritual, make it more about you know what goes on inside your head. And when he first started, City Temple was a huge church, a capacity of 1,200 people. They have queues going down High Holborn, all the way up Holborn in London, if you've ever been there. Uh, 1,200 people every Sunday were queued to get in to listen to this guy. And within 20 years, the church was empty. Because there's nothing there. There's no salvation. There's no hope. There's no faith in what God can actually do. Just this mediocre message. Oh, at least we're not crazy. But our church is shut. You see, the, you see the point? So the pressure we feel in so many different areas, especially to do with our sexual ethic, especially to do with the pressure on uh, surrounding, um, affirming gay relationships and so on, transgender and stuff like that, we feel this incredible pressure that our position is crazy. And yet to move is to abandon not just one minor point of doctrine, it's to move out of fellowship with Christ and away from the mission of God. It's to give up hope on the fact that God can actually save people, can actually change lives. And so, um, just to explain a point further, I was talking to a guy this week, he's in a church, and the pastor there did a, uh, he sent out a questionnaire to the church asking their views about um, gay marriage. And based on the results of that survey, most of the church came back and said that they would like to welcome uh, a married gay couple into the church into full membership. Now, it's a complicated issue. And there are lots of good intentions in why people would like to do that. They want to be welcoming and they want to be tolerant. Both are things, both are things that Christians should, be, should value. But they want to move from the historical position that a person who is baptised and welcomed into membership of a church must agree to live by the church's teaching on morality. Same way as we would ask a, an unmarried couple who were living together, for example, to get married before they became members of the church. So we would ask uh, a gay person to remain uh, chaste. They want to move away from that. And the, the, the pastor's proposing bringing this change because he thinks if they don't do that, the church is going to divide. It's going to become irrelevant. It's going to become like some kind of... Uh, you know, ultra-fundamentalist kind of uh, fortress where fewer and fewer people are. And um, what is he missing? He's missing the fact that there's a better hope. The guy I was talking to, he said, he, he'd written to the pastor and said, we need... Thanks, Nick. <laughs> we need to offer people something better than we're welcoming and tolerant. We need to be able to offer people the, the fact, the, the idea that God can actually change lives, that He can redeem you no matter what your background is, no matter how strong your desires are, whether they be about sex or anything else, it doesn't matter what the sin is and what the, the direction of your life is, God is able to heal you, set you free, and restore you into His image. We need to have a, a stronger vision of the beauty of chastity, what it means to be under control with regard to our bodies. What he's, what he's missing is he's missing the wonderful promise of the restoration of the natural order that's included in our salvation. He's missing the, the sanctity of marriage and how marriage between a man and a woman in exclusivity for the rest of their lives is like a, a beautiful bridge over which God's heavenly love pours into this world. It's, this, it's like the holy of holies in God's natural order. 
He's going to get rid of all those things because he thinks it's crazy. So he doesn't understand God's plan. So we all feel that pressure. We feel it culturally. Some, some people, some of you here today will just feel it as a kind of abstract thing. Feel like the culture's turning against us, maybe. A kind of, oh, it's not quite as comfortable to be a Christian in 2018 as it was 10, 20 years ago. But some, some of you, these things will be really close to home. And there'll be temptation because they're people you know, friends, family. It's that pressure to let go of the hope of what God can actually do. And go, do you know what? I think just the thing I've always believed is just a little bit crazy when it comes to it. I think I just need to water it down a little bit to accommodate reality. And God just wants you to see that that compromise is a step away from being involved in God's mission and away from fellowship with Jesus. And there's some, especially younger people in the congregation, you know, if you're anywhere near college or school or anything like that, the pressure, not because it affects you personally, not because it affects anyone you know, but simply the pressure, it's not that this is crazy, it's this, this evil, uh, if you hold a Christian position. It's not just that, oh, how could you believe that? That's silly, but, you know, you're the bad guy. Um, a, a guy called Carl Truman said, um, 2012, he said, uh, by 2020, to hold a conservative Christian position on sexual morality will be, will be the same in our culture's eyes as being a white supremacist. I think things are headed that way. The pressure is enormous. But what I want you to see in this, what I want you to see in this is where that pressure is directed and who it's coming from. It's coming from people who don't under, either don't understand the mission of God and what's at stake, or people who don't just aren't interested in obeying him. It's coming from people like Jesus' family who are saying, this is crazy. Or people like the Pharisees who just don't care whether God's winning or losing. <laughs> well, they don't want him to win, that's for sure. I hope that's helpful. Perhaps it's on a, on a personal level, I think, you know, maybe there are situations in our lives where we're tempted to compromise. Not because other people are saying things, but because suddenly we are confronted with a situation that it's just um, we're confronted with a situation that seems to tempt us away from either believing something that we've always believed or obeying God's commands in the same way. You know, when uh, a first romance comes along, you begin to ask the questions like, "Why does God want me to save sex for marriage?" You know, just to, to Hear that, term, hear that question, but hear where it's coming from. Why do Christians believe that we save sex or marriage? Because of God's mission. Because of the beautiful stuff that God wants to do in our lives. Why? And, you know, so there has to be the kind of... Uh, when, the, when those questions come, whether it's about... I'm only talking about uh, sex, really, because it's the primary area of conflict in, in our culture. There's so many areas of temptation. But it might be even a temptation about to believe different things about, um, about God. But when it comes, it's hearing where that's coming from and what the effects will be. God wants you to hold the line in terms of your belief and your behaviour so you can walk close with Jesus and be on mission with him. So I hope that's helpful. That's our first kind of big application. Secondly, and slightly more quickly, um, a bit of a change of direction, really. But I wonder if you've ever questioned Jesus actions 
in your own life. When have you ever been in a position where you've really wondered what God is up to? Have you ever been there? Ever been like a, tempted to say, God, this is crazy? Or ever tempted even to say, God, I'm not even sure you're doing good to me right now. It doesn't feel like it. Maybe uh, even begin to think that he's mistreating you. Has anyone ever, ever felt like that? So maybe that's you right now. Maybe you know someone who feels like that. Understanding what God's purpose is for you. Understanding what his mission is. is the key to understanding the craziness of his actions towards you. Hebrews, uh, writer to Hebrews says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, or as his sons, actually. For what, what sons are not disciplined by their father? We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. It's a throwaway line. In order that we may share in his holiness. Oh, just that little thing. <laughs> you see what he's saying there? It, if we understand what God is trying to do in our lives, we will understand the things that he takes us through. And the thing that we need to get into our heads when it comes to dealing with challenges and difficulties in our lives is God is not content to make you a happy, comfortable slave in his house. But he wants to make you into a child of God. He wants you to share in his holiness, to be so full of his love that you love the things that he loves. You hate the things that he hates. You do the things that he wants you to, that he wants to do freely and fully. He wants you to share in Christ-likeness. He wants to make you like Jesus. That is not a small thing. You know, we would be content to be doorkeepers in the house of God, wouldn't we? We'd be content, like the prodigal son, to come home, get saved, have a comfortable life, and not really have to worry too much anymore. Just, I'm forgiven, thank you, Lord. Oh, I'm happy in the basement. But God is not happy with that. He wants to robe us. He wants to put his, the, the ring of honour onto our fingers. He wants to treat us as sons. He wants to transform us into Christ-like people. And if we get that in our minds, we will begin to understand his crazy ways in our lives we'll begin to understand the things he takes us through. I'm going to quote uh, some length from C.S. Lewis, but I think he says it so well that it's just really no point in me paraphrasing it. So C.S. Lewis says this about this. Make no mistake, he says, God says to you, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand I am going to see this job through, whatever suffering it may cost you, whatever inconceivable purification, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until I can say without reservation that I am well pleased with you. This I can do and will do. But I will not do anything less. He goes on. We come to Christ and everything seems to be going well. Then troubles come along. Illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation. And we're disappointed. 
These things we feel might have been necessary in the past to to rouse us and make us repent from old bad habits. But why now? We've come so far. Why now does God bring these things? Because God is forcing you onwards, upwards to a higher level, putting you into situations where you will have to be very much braver, much more patient, more loving than you ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary. But that's because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? You ever feel like that? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So God's ways with us. You see what a difference it makes to see what he's trying to do? He's not just trying to get you into heaven. He's not just trying to, not just trying to rescue you. He's trying to turn you into a Christ-like person, full of the love of God, seeing and reflecting and overflowing perfectly with his love. It is hard. Sometimes it feels breakingly hard, like we kind of break. Goodness knows, I've, the Lord has done it to me. I'm constantly surprised as he reveals to me how much work is left to do. How pride is like a, like a cancer reaches into every single part of my being. That's just, just as one thing. <laughs> and how he gradually and slowly and carefully and patiently unpicks it. Extracts it. But this is the good thing. If we know his purpose, we don't just have to sit idly by and wait for him to heal us. We can actually have fellowship with him in it. We can join with him in mission in ourselves. We can say, God, why is this happening? Lord, why are you taking me through this trial? What good are you doing in me? What are you trying to change in me? We can throw out our prayers and ask him and he'll give us wisdom. He'll The Holy Spirit will will tell you. He will drop thoughts into your mind and give you pictures and lead you to scriptures and lead you through the counsel of good friends and through prophetic words and all these things. He will show you what he's trying to do so that you don't have to just sit there and take it, but you can join in with him and you can cry out to him, Lord, make me holy. Make me more like Christ. Deal with this issue in my life. And as we begin to join in with him and we realise what he's doing, he can build in us a rock-solid confidence that sees all possibilities in the future. No matter where God will take me, I know he's on my side. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to say that? With the same understanding and conviction that Paul wrote those words. God holds out the possibility. If we understand his mission in our lives, we can say with David, surely his goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 